Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Imperfect. This week's guest is Roman Roberts. Uh, What's fascinating about Roman is his story of growing up in the foster care system, going to the army, coming back, marrying his wife, and actually cheating on his wife, but they're still together. It's an amazing conversation of honesty, transparency about exactly what has transpired in Roman's life and I thank him so much for just how honest he was. A couple points that really stood out to me the most during our recording are a couple of of his quotes uh, here. Hustle is bigger than my struggle and you can't have a testimony without a test. And you know I'm so thankful for Roman to come on and share his testimony with us today. It's a great great discussion very open very honest very fun even though it's very heavy material that we cover and it's a background that i never even considered you know when first starting this podcast and just so thankful for for roman and on our friendship now as it's developed and grown since we've recorded this uh, a couple months back and you know this is episode number 30 if you told me when i started that i'd ever make it to episode number 30 i'd say you're kind of crazy so here we are gonna honor that achievement as well but we'll get into the episode now So Roman, thank you so much for being here. Am I pronouncing that correctly? I'm guessing you are. You are. It's Roman. I'm super pumped to be here. Yeah, thanks. Me too. You know, you reached out to me on LinkedIn with a really cool message. I I had to reply right away just with how cool and how interesting and how digestible I think it will be for a lot of people. And I'm really excited to dig more into your story. We talked briefly yesterday to kind of get more information about you and be able to kind of come at this with a with a better understanding of who you are. But you know, the first question I always ask my guests is, if you were to have anyone over for dinner, dead or alive, who would it be and what would you cook for them? Man, so uh, I thought about this one. And so I would have to say that uh, Teddy Roosevelt, right? That would have to be the person and then I thought, like, what meal would I make, right? And then I was like, well, I'll make something with bison, right? And I was like, ah, I don't know. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to make some little bison. So it would be Texas chili, but I would use bison instead of deer or turkey meat. Okay, perfect. And uh, what would you talk with them about? Oh, my gosh. I, I would probably start by talking about the Rough Riders and, and all of that experience for him and the leadership that he pulled from that. And then obviously his time in the presidency. And I mean, I would just... He's always been a book that's really interesting. A person that I've read about and his books are really interesting, his biographies and things like that. The the man behind the words, so to speak, right? You know, he's got like all these these phrases and things that everyone remembers, like the man in the arena and, and all of that kind of stuff. And so I think I just, I'd want to know the him behind all of that, I think. Yeah. What's your favorite quote by him? Um, so I would, yeah, off the top, I think it would be do what you can with what you have where you are. Right. So, because, and I think that's kind of true for, especially right now with what's going on. Yeah, no, that, that actually is very timely with, with the whole COVID situation. For those that don't know, it's COVID still time. Hopefully by the time this is posted, it's not COVID still, but, uh, that, that was a nice segue into the next question that I now ask my guests is what's your favorite book of all time or the book that most inspired you and why? Teddy Roosevelt's biographies are always there, right? Like, so any of those would be something that I do like to read, but most inspirational. So I would have to say that there, it's a handful of books, but obviously you want me to narrow it down to one. So I would say Raising Men, right? So it's written by Eric Davis. He's a, he's a Navy SEAL and he wrote a book about becoming a father, right? And so the reason I say that it's so kind of inspirational for me is it's about raising boys and I have a two-year-old son. And so this book kind of helped me look at my military experience and just life experience and figure out how to incorporate that into raising my son. It wasn't the first book that motivated me, but it's really a book that in this new chapter of my life is something that 
kind of as a timeless read for me. Mm -hmm. No, and I think that's also something too, is that there's so many books that inspire us at different times of our life and different cycles and where you are right now. Obviously, that's a book that would inspire you more than um, maybe a book that inspired you when you were a young man going into, you know, different going through different experiences. But now taking us back to when you were a young boy, young man, um, why don't you kind of delve into who you are, what your story is, why you want to come on this podcast and uh, then we'll go deeper in, into that background of yours. I love it. So I'll start with kind of the broad overview and then you just stop me whenever. I know I talk a lot, so uh, don't, don't hesitate. Kind of my story started obviously when I was born, but I was born into foster care. Really shortly after I was born, I got put into the foster care system here in Texas, and I grew up bouncing around from home to home. Uh, some were good, some were bad, right? And then eventually, I got adopted into a home. People would think, oh, that's a turning point in the story, right? That's where it gets good. Not, not, not so much. Uh, it was mentally and physically abusive in some ways, and just wasn't the greatest experience. So I used that as kind of a catalyst to get out of a small town as quickly as I could, and uh, took off, joined the military. And I became an interrogator right in the middle of the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I deployed multiple times, Iraq, Afghanistan, got to travel to all, all different kinds of countries and see all different kinds of things, but deployed with regular units in a strategic and then in a tactical environment. I deployed with some special operations groups and got to support them. And it was a powerful learning experience, but also uh, over that time period, we were in the middle of a war. So I lost friends, people I had gone close to, people I had gone to schools with. Um, all kinds of things like that. So that was a little bit of trauma in and of itself. And, but an experience I wouldn't change for the world. I mean, it, it really helped kind of shape me and mold me and, and took kind of a arrogant snot nosed brat and turned him into a kid and, or turned a kid into a man and gave him kind of a family and, and gave me kind of my first look at what people who care about you look like. And to this day, some of the people that are father figures to me, you know, I met them in my time in the military. And then after that, I got out and had I'm kind of lumping my transition period into that because I went to a contracting stint with special operations. So I, I went out there with them and I was in Helmand province of Afghanistan for two years, right? So uh, then it basically got to a place where I had done that for a really long time, <laughs> came uh, my wife now, uh, she was my girlfriend, fiance at the time, kind of threw down an ultimatum of sorts and said, hey, you can't keep doing this, it's not sustainable. We haven't seen each other in two years because I kept saying, oh, I'll take leave. Then I would go out on another op. Oh, I'll take leave. Then I would get tasked with something else. Oh, I'll take leave. And so it never happened, right? And uh, and so I was just chasing that next high kind of thing. So I came home. Transition wasn't really great for me. I just was kind of bitter that I'd left the military, but also trying to figure out what I was going to do next, right? I, I didn't know. And uh, that kind of drove me towards business and finishing my degree. I went into aerospace, did some work in there, um, became a quality manager. But in the midst of all this, still hadn't really dealt with the demons from my childhood or the demons uh, from the military. And so all of that kind of carried into my marriage. And I felt the walls kind of closing in around me at times. And uh, instead of doing the healthy thing and talking about it, right, I uh, just bottled it up and drank it down with, with a bottle, right? And uh, eventually um, got to a place where I stepped out of my marriage, was disconnected from my wife, was, you know, a person that, A, I don't even recognize right now, B, I... I would probably knock out if I saw on the streets today. So just a, a totally different person, not, not proud of who I am, but proud of what, or who I was, but the experience did teach me a lot of things and gave me a lot of appreciation. And so shortly after that, my wife and I managed to kind of get our marriage back on track. I uh, started, you know, going to therapy and journaling and uh, 
kind of stepping away from alcohol and pills and things like that. And, uh, just kind of moved to a more holistic, healthy lifestyle, yoga, all that kind of stuff. And kind of began coping with and understanding that, you know, I'm not defined by the fact that I was a foster kid. I'm not defined by the fact that I was in the military. I'm not even defined by the fact that I got to work with special operations or the fact that I'm in business or, or any of that. Those are just part of my life. Right. And so from there, I jumped, just kept jumping into it and trying to help businesses and, and be a consultant and take my experience and use it both like speaking to people and, and kind of motivating them and inspire them. I got to speak at the foster home I grew up at. And, uh, then just kind of working with businesses and taking my military and personal and life experience and kind of that making it through any adversity mentality and kind of helping apply that to their business to, to help them take it to the next level. Yeah. And so that's an amazing story. Very well told. A lot, a lot of summary there. But I want to go back to the foster kid and being, you said there's good homes and there's bad homes. You know, for someone who doesn't know anything about the foster care system, like myself, probably 99% of my, my listeners kind of run us through that experience. What was it like? What's, what is your definition of a good home and a bad home? Cause I'm sure that that's kind of different for everyone. You went through different systems, probably different belief structures, kind of run us through what that was like. Yeah. So, um, I will start by saying that the foster care system is not perfect, but it's also a lot better than leaving a kid on the street. Right. So, uh, when I say good and bad home, the good homes were families that, that were loving and sweet and, you know, gave me a room and, and gave me attention and, and love and kind of that feeling of belonging, right? And the not so great homes were uh, anything from abuse to, you could tell they were just collecting a paycheck, you know, just kind of, you were there, but you weren't their kid. You were part of their home, but more of a burden than, than a blessing, right? And, uh, and so it just, just physically and emotionally abusive would be kind of the, the key definition for those bad homes. But it also goes so much deeper than that, right? Like at the time that I was in the system, it was, it was a lot smaller. There was a, a lot less control. And even at the time where I was in, part of the reason that I was moved from home to home so much was because the houses, those actual foster homes, were used to house older kids, right? So they needed to get me in a different environment than that some of those kids were close to aging out of the system and different things like that. So it was just uh, really, really interesting in that sense that that happened. And the funny thing is, is so me and my sister recently reconnected and she went, when I was growing up, I went through the system. She didn't go through the system. She got picked up by a family uh, really quickly. And she basically lived a whole life with a great family, became a nurse, like, has four beautiful boys. I mean, just totally different stories, right? But I wouldn't change those stories for anything. But, you know, there there are good and bad places, just like everyone knows there's good and bad people, right? And so, so that's kind of that. Yeah. And so that's really interesting going into your sisters. So if someone has a sibling, they're not automatically picked up together or adopted together? So at the time that I was in the system, that wasn't the case. So now more often than not, so two things happen differently now uh, than they did when I was a kid. They they do try to get you back with your family or someone inside of your original family. Or And if you're adopted or put into the system with your relative, they usually try to keep you with that relative. Yes, those are... The, but, but when I was going through it, that wasn't quite so much the case. And that doesn't make it bad. They were trying to find homes, right? And sometimes sometimes a family can take two kids, sometimes they can't, right? And so it was it was more just trying to find a good home so that was that was kind of the big piece of it. Yeah. And so in in moving to these different homes, you said, you know, some are able to accommodate some for older families. 
how what is it like to constantly were you constantly living in like fear of being moved especially if you were in a good home or was it kind of like you were told you're there for a certain amount of time that wasn't followed through what was your what was your thought process as a child yeah so i mean honestly it's part of the thing that made me such a great interrogator right i learned how to be a chameleon and kind of manipulate and fit into the systems that i was in um because you didn't know right so when you start out, you, you're really open and loving and, and you're so excited because this is going to be the home, right? And you're just happy to be in a home. And as it kept progressing, eventually I got to a place where I just didn't want to acknowledge them, right? If you don't let them in, they can't hurt you. And when you walk away, it doesn't feel bad, right? So, so that was kind of the stance. So at first open and then more and more as I got into it. And then even when I stepped into the, the home that I, I got adopted into, not at all happy about it, not at all. I mean, upending somebody from their life, uprooting them from that, that foundation is, is kind of rough no matter what age you are, right? Even to this day, when you're an adult and you move somewhere, it's still kind of traumatic in a way. And so multiply that by being a kid without a family, without someone to really turn to. And, you know, you're kind of rolling the dice when you walk through that door. And you'd always wait for like kind of the caseworker to leave because who they are when the caseworker is gone, it lets you know what you're going to get, right? Like, you know, you learn to stop judging it by those first introductions because those don't really mean much. Yeah. So in terms of, that's a really interesting point you just made in terms of trust. And so I'm sure this kind of will, will parlay into your, your, your time in the military and whatnot, but how did you come to trust people coming up through that kind of inconsistency in your life. You just said some, you learned like really early that people were different in front of other people. I'm really curious of how you learned to trust now and how, how was that kind of a growing process for you? Yes. Yeah, so I, to be honest, I don't think I really learned to trust people until I got married. Prior to that, some people kind of gained my trust into this day. And, and now even I saw what they did for me and how they loved me. And that kind of has changed my relationship and my trust with them. But uh, right off the bat, I mean, I didn't trust anybody. I didn't have anybody. I didn't know anybody. And everybody that I did trust ended up hurting me. So trust wasn't really a big thing, which kind of made me great at my job as an interrogator because I, I didn't trust anybody. So they had to they had to convince me to believe them, right? And then in relationships, I mean, I won't lie. I, I used, you know, psychological manipulation on uh, women that I would date. I, I didn't care about friends it was what can i get out of the relationship how would it benefit me in the future right things like that so i mean i, I was not a great person to be around i i seemed like a great person i was super fun and super nice but behind the scenes in the back of my mind it was more you know don't let this person in because they're gonna hurt you and be ready to hurt them first so it was it was almost like an always on the the defensive like always high adrenaline kind of posture and uh so uh, until my wife, I mean, I, I would say that I really didn't trust people. Yeah. That's like, to me, that's just so awful to even think of that process because, I mean, I it takes so much bravery to even admit that um, and then work through all those things too. Like every aspect of your, your life takes a lot of, took a lot of bravery to get through to from foster care to obviously the military. I couldn't even imagine being in the military. You know, Canada's a much more like pacifist idea, but then I also come from like a Christian home. So like that kind of wasn't, violence was never part of the the answer ever for me. And I always feel like my, my dad's a very like non-confrontational person. I feel like I have that as well. Um, but going back to then, you know, 
if you're moving from foster home to foster home, there's lots of different characteristics of men that you probably saw in your life from good fathers to bad fathers. to really always having those abandonment, maybe issues or, or movement issues. So how was that process in your, in your mind? Is there any, any, was there anyone that kind of stuck out to you as a, as a good man that you really keep in contact with? Is there anyone from the, that time that you still speak with or? So my time in foster care, not really. So the family that adopted me, things went bad. And, and at this point in my life, I'm willing to admit, like, I made mistakes too, right? Like, I wasn't the best kid. But even not being at my best did not warrant some of the, the treatment that I got, right? So, so it's kind of a both sides had blame, but also I was a kid, right? <laughs> like, what, what did you really expect? And so, but as far as impactful men during that time, I mean, I had some teachers in school that were pretty impactful. Um, there was a teacher, Mr. Ireland, who was an algebra teacher. He believed in me when nobody else could. And I have a degree in business analytics, right? And, and an MBA focused in business because when everyone else said I couldn't be good at math, he was like, yeah, you can. Stop listening, right? So I mean, he, he was an amazing man and uh, helped me so much. There was a history teacher, Mr. Forrester, who taught me to appreciate history. And uh, he was a big Teddy Roosevelt fan. I'm pretty sure that's where some of that came from. And uh, before that, there was a, he, he's actually the CEO of the foster home. He's stepping, that I grew up in, he's stepping down now. But he came to the foster home at the same time that I did. So I was one of kind of the first cases that he knew about or whatever. And then as he went through time, he progressed up and uh, became the CEO. So, and then reached out to him and he let me go speak at the foster home that I grew up with to the kids that were just like me, you know, so he, he's been an impactful part and he's just an amazing man. He just, I, I mean, just the level of care and the passion that, that's into it for him. I mean, it's, it's literally all about helping the kids and he helped me kind of look back at my time there and realize that some of the things that I went through and the families I went through, it's really not the foster cares, like that foster home's fault. It was the foster care system at the time. And I think if you ask anybody now, especially people working inside of the system, they'll tell you the system's not perfect, right? But that doesn't mean it's inherently a bad system because giving them an opportunity to a family is something, right? And, and there are people who would disagree and on both sides of it, right? And I don't care. This is my stance from being a kid inside the system. I would rather have a chance inside the system and have bad families than not even be born at all, right? Or or not even, get, or be stuck in that abusive home, right? So, and, and every scenario is a little bit different, but in mine, I mean, I, I, I wish for it. And just like there's a bad story like mine, there's a good story like my sister's, right? So, you know, it, it's it's kind of hard to just blanketly apply to the system. The system is bad or, or the system is perfect because it, it has to kind of be viewed through the lens of, of what you're going through it and what those foster homes are doing. Some homes are not as good as other homes, right? Some don't go through that rigor. Some caseworkers don't even have the time to go through all this. Like for anyone listening, if, if you know anything about the foster care system, or even if you don't, right, take a moment, go look into it. There are, I mean, there are foster care systems here in the state of Texas that are just saying, hey, like, would you be willing to go as a civilian, look at cases, look at files, because there's just not enough caseworkers to do it, right? And all of those places are asking for donations because there's not enough. Now imagine them in the middle of COVID right now, right? So so already strained systems being strained ever so much more, right? So it, all of that put together, it really is, it's a very uphill battle. And, and those foster care workers, those house parents, they're on the front lines every day, so to speak, of, of what that is. And then you have to deal with 
kids with different levels of trauma from abuse to their parents. I mean, I, I always dreamed as I was in the foster home that my mom was going to come back and get me. Like, I always, she was going to come barreling through that door. She was going to take me back. We were going to go live in a mansion. I was going to have a Rolls Royce. Like it was going to be amazing, right? Like the, the imagination as a kid that I had, like it, it was naive, but also like, that's what I thought. So I would take it out on house parents. You're not my mom. You can't tell me what to do. I don't need to listen to you. Right. And, and so those parents deal with that. They deal with kids that they're trying to love every day, telling them, I don't love you and care about you. And that's not always true, right? Like, like, as we're saying that, we don't necessarily mean that. We're just, we're angry, we're hurt, we're bitter, we're working through it. So they have to deal with that every day sometimes. And so, so it's rough. And so that's just kind of my shout out to, to the foster care system and the workers. I think that's, I think that's so true too. Cause like, you know, for myself, I grew up pretty, obviously very fortunate, very privileged in a, in a place where I have a loving family that really cares for me, provides for me. I'm, I live at home when I can, I commute to work every day. I still have this place to call home now that COVID is a thing. Like my parents are like, yeah, you can stay in your room. And I know that not everyone has that kind of support system. And so it's easy to look at foster care and be like, oh, it's such a terrible system. It does. It's so horrible. Um, You know, there's studies on it about how like, you know, bad for a child's health it is or how unsafe it is. But clearly there's roots to it that are helpful for you and for your sister. And yeah, would you rather be in a foster home? Maybe unfortunately suffering sometimes abuse and emotional abuse, or would you rather be on the streets? And you kind of just alluded to that there's a positive side to that, that it's not the life that I have, but it's, and it's one that I would look down on and be like, that's not a high quality life. But you look, it's the, you think it's a quality life for yourself because you'll look at other people and say, that's not what I want. That's not a quality life for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will actually say to that, like, so my wife says it all the time and it's beautiful. Um, she, she always says you can't have a testimony without a test. Right. And, uh, and that's kind of, for me, I, I have this story that I can tell and I can, I can relate to the foster kid or the person struggling with addiction or the person who struggles with an affair or, or whatever it is. Like I can kind of relate to it because I've been through it. Right. And, and that means that makes it so much easier for me to tell somebody. And then that makes it when I'm talking to businesses, it makes it that much easier because Hey, I, I've been through some hard stuff. I, I know how to get through it. And I know that if we build some roots and we do this, we can get through it, right? We've got to be open. We've got to communicate. Like the same principles that apply in bettering yourself apply in bettering a business, right? So you, all of that kind of goes full circle. And I mean, I wouldn't trade my struggle for anything because it, it got me, right? And I, just, and I just hustled through it, right? Like my, my hustle was always bigger than my struggle. I said that in a podcast that I was on a long time ago, but that, that was that was really it. Like I just I just knew I wanted more. I knew I wanted better, and I just kept pushing for it. And I got sidetracked. I got lost along the way. I made a ton of mistakes, and I'm sure I'll make more. But you know, I, I take them and I learn from them, and I, and I take them in stride. And that's and I think that's really all anybody can do, right? Mm-hmm. No, I and I think that's really a really beautiful concept right there. Is you can't have a testimony without a test. You know, one thing, and this sounds ridiculous to say to me, but it's something I've always thought. Because I am a straight white male, which makes my life pretty easy. I grew up in a very Christian home, which makes it pretty easy. I grew up with two loving parents, made it pretty easy. I'm the youngest of four, made it pretty easy. And I always kind of wish I maybe had a little bit more struggle in my life. I've never been one to struggle with much. And if I did struggle, I always had like a fallout plan with my, or like if it was financial, my parents would be able to back me up. I've never really had a lot of adversity in my life. And 
it sounds so ridiculous to say, but I got kind of get jealous of people that have a, have had a bit more adversity, whether it's immigrant parent, like immigrant families, immigrant children. You know, I I really feel like I can't relate in a privileged way to those people, and I never want to get too much of an ego or too disconnected from the society that that has that struggle, even though I I have, and which is why one of the reasons I love doing this podcast is I still struggle in some ways as a man. And I feel like that's where I can kind of show my true colors or or talk about the tests that I've had. And so, yeah, it's that thing. I, I wish I've had a test because I don't think I have a testimony yet. And I don't think I've gone through what I'm supposed to go through in life yet. It's funny because this whole like thing of self-isolation is probably the biggest test I've ever had in my life. If I can't go outside and meet with my friends and I'm like an introverted extrovert, I love being alone, but I don't like being told to be alone, which is such a minuscule thing, but it's like that, this is truly one of the biggest tests I've ever gone through. And it just sounds so shallow and like stupid to say. So, so not even at all. Right. So, I mean, I, I don't think that at all. And, and it's funny because it's one kind of one of the things I struggle with as a parent. And, uh, but I, I don't think there really is a shallow struggle, right? Like, I, I don't understand yours because I'm not an, I, I don't, isolation doesn't bother me or not being isolated. Like either way really bothers me one way or another. I've been in both, um, but it impacts you. Right. And that's what matters, right? How does it impact you? How does it, how does it make you feel? How does it Im- impact the way that you view the world through your lens? Right. And I think that makes it major. And I think the big problem is we try to tell people, you know, Oh, that's shallow. Oh, you just, you just don't get it. There's people who have it so much worse than you, right? Like, like there were people. So with my son, I grew up in foster care. No, no real family growing up. My wife is, her mother was first generation into America. So her and her brothers are college graduates, right? Great jobs, an engineer. One works at Facebook. She's a teacher, right? I mean, they're, they're doing great things. But I mean, they're they're kind of they came up from from that struggle. I mean, they grew up like sharing one little thing of Wendy's fries, right, and and a, and a large Coke, and each getting a separate burger, right. So, and it's a struggle that I never went through, even being in foster care, right. Like there were times I didn't have food and stuff like that, but I never had to share it with anybody. I I would just mind. But so now having a kid, people are always like, oh man, like your kid's spoiled, this and that. Your kid's, oh man, like. And sometimes I, I had to catch myself at first because I'd be like, man, kid, you don't even get it, like. I didn't have those toys when I was growing up. I wish somebody would take me to SeaWorld when I was growing up and stuff. But but also at the same time, I'm like, and I'm sure your parents think this too, right? Like, like I struggled, so my family doesn't have to. I joined the military, so my son doesn't have to, right? Unless, unless that's just really what he wants to do. But I went through the things I went through to give my family a better life. And that's what I've done, right? So so I, I want my kid to grow up and say, man, I feel like my problems are so shallow. Well, that's the idea, right? Like, I went through hell, so you don't have to. And so I think I think it's a great thing. It's a great testimony to your family and what you have. So I think it's kind of great. I mean, in my opinion, that's a good way of looking at it because you have the parent perspective too. that you went through the struggle. Now you're giving the idea that you don't want that for your son. And I have a right to spoil my kid because I've created this for myself. I'm not just spoiling my kid. I'm spoiling me and my, cause my kid is part of me. Now also on the, on the other hand, my kid's not going to be a dick, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know how much language is, is no, a problem here. no, but, no language filters. No worries. But, but he's not going to be, you know what I mean? Like it just being, being spoiled, like quote unquote spoiled. That, that's not what I'm trying to do with him. I just want him to have the best opportunities in life and the best things. He still has to appreciate. He still has to pick up all the toys that we bought him. He still has to say yes or no, ma'am, and be respectful and all these pieces, right? Like being spoiled doesn't give him free reign to just be a jerk. But 
him having more than what I had, A, times have changed. B, that's that's what I want. That's the idea. But he's still going to appreciate and continue as he grows up to learn to appreciate. Yeah. And that's amazing. There was one more thing that I want to touch on uh, with foster care before uh, we went further with uh, your time in the military. But you kind of brought up your mom for a second. And you said, uh, you know, you dreamed about her coming back on like a, a pony or a car and then going to a mansion, having like a Rolls Royce. So if you don't mind my asking, kind of what was the reason behind you being in foster care? And is that part of your story as well? Like, yeah, man. So I, I, as funny as it is, so I reconnect with my sister, right? Like I said, and truth be told, she's probably the only person in my family that I want to be reconnected with. And she reached out to our mother and stuff like that. And, but not to get too deep into it. I don't really know. I, I mean, for whatever reason, my, my mom couldn't take care of me. And I guess props to her, right. For saying that she, she couldn't take care of me because in my opinion, it's better for her to put me in the system than not be able to take care of me, right? Because I, I don't know what the scenario would have been then. So I, I don't hold it against her. I'm not bitter towards her, but also at the same time, like I, I don't really know the details and, and I don't really care to, so to speak. Yeah. I was just interested because you, you talked about like the dream of, of that happening and Yeah, and and I and it, it I think it's a dream that every foster kid has, right? Like, and I think even if you do get adopted into a good family, there's still a part of you that, you know, cause that's, that's your blood, right? Like that's your, that, that piece of it. So, I mean, there was always a part that wanted to be connected to her, but now at this point being a parent and understanding she went her way, we went ours, the records were sealed. Right. So it's not like it's extremely easier, easy to find her. Me and my sister actually connected because my wife is just a, an amazing Facebook investigator and she just went down the rabbit hole and found her. Right. And, it, and it's been amazing. And so I think it plays out the way it's meant to. And so I, I don't really put too much stock into it, but I don't discredit her or like, Oh my gosh, she's a horrible mother. But I think, if, I think if you ask any foster kid, they would tell you, I, my, my mother's a millionaire and she's going to come get me or my father or whoever. Right. Like it's just, it's just there because they're your, they're your real parents. Yeah. But then I want to go into your time in the military, being an investigator. I, you, I think you alluded to the fact that you just wanted to get out of the foster care system. You just wanted to kind of escape that, and that's so how that's why you joined the military. Or yeah, so I had been adopted into a family, and um, they were very Christian. We were in a small town, and I mean, it just it didn't go well. There was abuse. There was all kinds of other stuff. It just wasn't a great environment, right? And again at this point, no ill will, right? Life is life. But I, I left there as quick as I could. I got out of that to, to move on. And obviously, I've had to deal with it and have a lot of therapy to get to the place where I'm like, I forgive them. I hope they forgive me. Like, we're, we're just not connected anymore. Yeah. And once you're in, uh, once, once you're officially adopted, do the caseworkers kind of just forget about you or what? Um, so mine didn't actually, she kind of stayed, uh, around and stayed aware of me. And actually when I went to the foster home me and her reconnected, she met my son. Uh, funny story about that. I didn't come out first. I was in the bathroom and, uh, my son was sitting there with my wife and she recognized my son because he looked exactly like I did as a kid. And she gave me the first pictures of me that I ever had of me when I was young. Right. So, I mean, um, she, she was always involved in my life. She knew people in the area that adopted me. So her family, she had family out there. So she would constantly ask about me and things like that. And uh, just things happen where we, we couldn't be connected at that point in time. And it was kind of a rough period for me as well. And so I joined the military and I became an interrogator and got away from that small town and that family as, as quickly as I could. Mm -hmm. And so what was the reasoning? Like, 
did kind of the the military see you as someone that would be an interrogator because of your background? Like, how did that play to your strengths in, in the military? How do you think that kind of translated over? Um, so they basically just said, hey, do you want to be an interrogator? And here's like the cash bonus to do it, right? And so I was like, sounds great, do it. Um, and then honestly, I, I just became really good at it. And uh, I mean, I went to the schoolhouse and learned it and it, it clicked really, really quickly for me. I mean, because it was really just manipulating people. And, and I don't say that in a negative way. I mean, I just say that because it's, it's having conversations with people. And it's not like the movies where you're like waterboarding and doing all this crazy stuff. It's really just kind of like what we're doing right now, having a conversation. But it's about being able to flow with it. It's about being able to understand when somebody's trying to take you for a ride and saying, ah, wait, hold on, right? It, it's, it's knowing those things. And, uh, and I think that that not trusting from growing up in foster care and, you know, my ability to kind of chameleon and understand real early on that I needed to fit in with groups and make friends and connect, right? Like that, that kind of drove me to be successful in that environment. And it allowed me to leverage skill sets that otherwise I, I wouldn't have had, right? So it wasn't the military's choice per se to put me in there, but the military definitely gave me you know, knowledge and training to, to utilize the things that I had, had gotten from growing up. Mm -hmm. And when you were in the military, kind of what was that like in sense of, did it kind of give you a structure that you always craved? Um, I know that the military is like, from what I've heard is a very structured place. Like there's clearly hierarchies and tiers of, of command and power. Was that kind of a system that you've been craving your entire life? Yeah. So it's kind of funny. It wasn't, it wasn't right. So it gave me structure. It gave me father figures. It gave me family. It gave me a brotherhood. Um, I mean, there are men and women that I met in the military that I'm still connected to now that uh, have been fundamental parts of my life. Right. And, and probably always will be. But along with that, I mean, I got to also kind of be a rebel kid. Like I was a lower enlisted soldier, you know, talking to officers, sometimes not even wearing uh, an army uniform, right? Being deployed, having a beard, uh, interacting with locals and interacting with uh, detainees, and then also interacting with leadership, right? So I could be talking to a person and they, they might not know how, how old or young I am or what my rank is, right? So it was, it was structured, but it was also a little bit of kind of that rebel, bad boy, I don't know, like alpha thing that kind of, but that also ended up kind of being detrimental to me later as I moved out of the military and I kind of felt entitled. Right. And I was like, what do you mean? You don't have a job for me. I'm, I'm this amazing military soldier who deployed multiple times and, and I got to support special operations. What, what do you mean? You don't have any, do you know who I am? Right. So, so I mean, a little, a little bit of both, but the structure was good. The, the brotherhood, the camaraderie, the friends, we jokingly say the military is the best worst time of your life, right? So, and it, and it really was. I I loved it. I have some bad memories and some some sad things, and I've lost some friends, but I also have you know uh, a great structure. I was given a great opportunity. I was able to get my bachelor's and master's. Um, I was put in a city where I ended up finding my wife. You know, like like all these things wouldn't have happened had I not joined the military. So. You met your wife in the, in the States, but while on assignment or something like that? So I was in the military. I was stationed here in San Antonio and she lived here and we, uh, we just kind of met uh, here in the city. Actually, not long after we met, I got out of the military and jumped into contracting, right? So so literally I was like, hey, we're, we got this great relationship. I really care about you. I really like to see where this goes. And oh, by the way, I'm going to Afghanistan. <laughs> and then I just like took off, right? So um, that put some strain on the relationship, which, you know, I'm sure we'll get into that. But the military was, yeah, I mean, it was just a, 
it was a great chance to experience a lot of different people, a lot of different cultures. I mean, I got to go to Australia, I got to uh, go to Europe, all, all kinds of different places. I mean, it was, it was, it was beautiful. Yeah. And you talked a little bit about the ego of, um, or the pride, I guess, in, in the different ranks of the military. So you talked a little bit earlier about tactical, strategic. For me, that doesn't know anything about those things. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So, I mean, I got to work at both levels, right? So I got to work in kind of the higher, that structured military that you're talking about, right? With, with the uniforms and the kind of proper and all of that. But then also I got to spend time in Hellman with special operations, right? And I got to kind of work in a, in a less, to say less structured, but more of kind of that elite kind of outside of the box mentality, right? So tactical is focused on, you know, mission objective, going out and, you know, clearing buildings and doing things like that and being in like small team environments or even larger scale, right? So it can be larger tactical units, but one is kind of more, administrative and one is actually like what you see in the movies kind of thing right and and it's not to say that both roles aren't important and i'm not detracting from any of that in any way right they're both equally important but the tactical piece is is a little more i guess threatening so to speak i guess because there's i mean a lot of friends i friends when you lose friends they're out there doing something tactical for the most part there's people who get injured inside of bases and different things like that but most of the friends i lost were were lost uh, in, a, in a tactical operation going into clear building getting blown up in a minefield or, or stepping on an ied right or being on a convoy and getting attacked in there right so it, it's just they're just two different environments of the same thing right the military is stressful and dangerous no matter how you do it but one is more right there in the thick of it and you know when i was working with strategic i was on a base that actually had like a water bird or a, a burger king you know and a coffee shop and stuff like that so it's a little bit different it's not to detract from from either one or, or make anyone less important but it, it was it was different and it gives you a different mindset right so when i worked with the, those special operations guys in hellman uh, you know it's a very small base and I don't know. I learned so much about business and leadership in that time just because of their like level of rigor and not to say that it doesn't exist in the entire military, but for there, I mean, those guys kind of had to do it all right. They were, it was a small little team and you know, the, the lowest ranking still had to carry as had to do as much stuff as the highest ranking, right? Like there was no, it, it was just, it was really interesting to see how they all connected together and how they did everything and and there was really no structure like they referred to each other by names not by ranks like it wasn't captain this or sergeant that and so it was it was just kind of a, a different not like so more informal more informal yeah they were just really close knit and they were very connected because they had been together for years they had been on teams either that team or a similar team together and so and and they just were very just tactical methodical everything was was very precise for them i mean I remember watching just the way they would take apart their gear at the end of operations and the way they would put it back together and just the, the level of discipline while they may not look it cause they got raggedy beards and you know, they're wearing like a regular t-shirt and some board shorts with a Glock while they're like getting ready to, to get ready to gear up, to go out. But just the discipline and the, and the rigor that went into what they did. I mean, it, would ju it just kind of showed that, you, you can have that kind of discipline and that structure. It doesn't, what, what you see isn't always what it is. Right. And, and uh, I mean, even for, cause I can remember seeing them when I was 
early in the military and thinking, oh my gosh, like they just do whatever they want. Like they, they have no rules. They grow beards. They're like the coolest people in the world. Right. And really and truly like they're the nicest, most down to earth. I mean, that unit that I was with, there was a guy with like a PhD. You'd have never known it though. Like he was just a super chill, casual guy, like really, really cool. Um, and you know, covered in tattoos and you know, it just kind of, it also kind of taught me that stereotypes, like they, they exist and we have them, but they're not always right, you know. I mean, and that, and that's kind of weird, I guess. But and maybe a little bit off topic. But yeah, it was just it was interesting, just how that environment is, and just how what you see. Like, I think if I don't know in the town that I grew up in, I think if somebody saw a tattooed person walk in there, full sleeves, really bulky and and, and built, I, I don't think people are going to be like, oh that guy's got a PhD in chemistry, right? Like, like that, that's not going to happen in, in the town that I grew up in. But it, it just shows you, like, what you see isn't always what it is, right? And and some of them were super sweet. They would, like, read bedtime stories to their daughters over Skype, you know? So, I mean, they're just, they're just regular people, and they're just doing amazing things. And and then the same thing on that on that strategic side, right? You've got, like, officers in uniforms who – would go out there and and get their hands dirty with with the privates and the lower enlisted and it was it was just great to see like that leadership and how it just ebbs and flows and it really did teach me a lot it really was a great structural and kind of informative and framework uh, for me especially as I moved into business and into consulting yeah beautiful and when it came to i guess I'm I'm assuming that being an interrogator wasn't like the easiest thing, and and that it probably didn't help with your trust too much. Is that was that fair to say? Like, what did, what did that make you think of politics at a wider scale? I'm I'm I'm, I'm interested. Yeah, man. So I um I'm not a I'm not a tinfoil hat kind of guy, but I'm also you know I'm I'm a very crunchy holistic person, right? And I still. I mean, I don't trust anybody fully still to this day. I don't think anybody is 100% trusting. So I'm not against government or anything like that. I think it's good. It does a lot of great things. Uh, but especially here in the United States, I uh, I try to be very like independent, right? And pick the person that's the best nonpartisan, whoever's best for the, for the overall, right? And obviously your framework kind of structures that. So when I was in the military, I tend to align more with people who were going to help military, right? And then my wife was a teacher, so I educated with, or I aligned myself with politicians and people who aligned to help that, right? So a little bit of self-interest inside of there. But honestly, I just, I'm at a place now in politics where I want people to, to help the community, right? And the military, the military showed me that that is possible, right? Because when you go into the military, there's all different races, creeds, colors, there's people from Puerto Rico, there's people, you know, who are getting their citizenship, yeah, like, there's all kinds of these different dynamics. And, and there's people who used to not be US citizens, right? Maybe they were Iraqi, or, or an Afghan, and they, they ended up getting citizenship, and they joined the military, because the reason they got citizenship was because they were able to help the military, right? So, so you see this, like, wide plethora of people. And it was, it just kind of showed me that there really is no right answer, right? Like it's not, it doesn't have to be only the Republican party's way is right or only the democratic, right? Like, you know, pot's not terrible, right? And you know, <laughs> this and that isn't bad. And so there, there's room to flex. And, and I think that's the biggest problem is, and, and I think it's kind of a misconception with the military is that we're also rigid and we just like follow the rules and we own robots who do what we're told. We're also individuals, right? And you, you also have to make decisions on the fly when you're in a in a combat environment or when you're in an interrogation booth or when you're 
you know, on a base setting up for an attack or doing whatever it is, right? You still have to, there, there's a little bit of independent thinking inside of that. And so it, it was really interesting to see people you think would be diehard Republicans. They're actually like, yeah, you know, actually I'm more of a progressive or oh, I'm more of a libertarian, right? And so it, it kind of goes back to that stereotype thing. So politics for me is really just, you know, be a genuinely good person and, and care about the people underneath you. Yeah, beautiful. And then transitioning from the military to now post-military, you talked a little bit previously about how, you know, you kept going. She was your, uh, your wife then was a fiance and there was a lot of like communication there about, you know, when you're coming back, let's make a life for us here. Kind of what was the transition period like? Was there any kind of lingering issues that you would have had from foster to military to, to then moving home? I'm assuming there was because there's a lot of chaos there. Then coming home to a wife, it's probably less chaotic. Maybe once you have a firstborn, I'm sure there's maybe a little bit more chaos. But uh, kind of kind of run us through that transition period. Yeah, so I think um, I think I transitioned very poorly, but I, honestly, I and and kind of one of the things that you know in therapy and then watching different people and pastors and things like that, like. Marriage is essentially two people taking their baggage, putting it together and saying, all right, we're perfect now, right? And, and, it's, and it's not quite that case. And, and more so on my end, right? Like I came into this relationship not dealing with any of the things in my foster care, not really telling my wife anything about it, except like, oh, yeah, I grew up in foster care and, you know, I'm, I'm cool with it. When really and truly, that just means that I haven't dealt with it, right? And then I deployed and, and had lost friends and not really talked about it or dealt with it or, or anything like that. So... And then kind of walked away from that deployment, not necessarily on my own terms, you know, my wife saying, hey, like, come back and, and me still kind of wanting to be there. And so I came in with a little bit of resentment and, you know, needed to, to work through that. Um, so, so really and truly, as far as me transitioning and doing it right, I, I actually didn't. Right. And it kind of got to a rock bottom place where I would get angry. We'd get in a fight. I'd go drink or even we, we wouldn't even fight. Right. So one of our biggest problems was we wouldn't communicate with each other. Right. Like I'd, I'd made a I'd made a life of being a communicator and, you know, worked in worked in management, quality management. So you're communicating with auditors and all kinds of different people. Prior to that, I'm an interrogator talking to people all the time. Right. But here I am, like not communicating any of this or what's going on to my life in my life to my wife or how I'm thinking or how I'm feeling. Right. And part of it was because I'm the man, right? My job is to provide. I'm not, I don't need to tell her my problems, but if I don't tell her my problems, you know, how is she supposed to help me with it? How is she going to understand when, you know, I'm, I'm upset or whatever it is? So like, she has no clue, right? So she's over there thinking, what did I do wrong? This and that, right? Then it builds these rifts and this chaos. And so uh, really and truly, we got to a place where we just kind of disconnected and more so me than anything else. And that disconnect pushed me to step out of my marriage. And that was that was kind of the last straw. And she was like, all right, you know, we, we kind of moved to a place where we were both actually talking about like, drawing up divorce papers and, and leaving and things like that. And, and so what does step out of your marriage mean in, in your context? Oh, yeah. So I, so I had an affair. I should have had an affair with another woman. So. Yeah. And I think that's a very, to me, when you talk about communication issues, I, I find it very fascinating because as you said, you used it. And it's so much in my head that you used communication to survive when you were younger. You used it to survive when you were in the foster care. You used communication to, to survive in the military, especially being on, on deployment. But when you come back, it's not really about surviving anymore. You were in a place where it was like a home. You you had a fiance, you had a wife, and the communication wasn't really as as necessary for survival anymore. But then once it was you realized 
no, I still, I love my wife. I need my wife to survive. That's kind of when communication opened up again. Does that seem like a fair assessment? Like, I don't, I like, I don't know. Yeah. 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 Pretty fair. And, and I think even more so than that, it was that, you know, she, she didn't give up. And, and I kind of had a moment where I was like, oh, I want to give up. And then it's funny because she had a moment where she was like, no, you know, I'm, I'm not going to take you back. And I was like, no, take me back. Right. Like I'm working on it. Right. And, and not like I'm forcing you to take me back. It's, I'm working on it. Like, and you know, we, we still have it out. Sometimes we still have knockdown drag outs. Like no one's perfect. Right. We still, we still fight. We still argue. We still get upset with each other, but before we do it. And, and so before I lived by this phrase, like happy wife, happy life, and so I'm not detracting from that phrase and people that say it. I just think in my life, it's a bullshit phrase. So happy wife, happy life. My wife had everything. Like she, all her friends thought, oh my gosh, like he buys you everything. He lets you do whatever. Like, oh my gosh, it's perfect. And we were horrible, right? And then like, then we moved into kind of a place where we communicate more when maybe we don't buy as much stuff. Maybe we do. And I mean, she's still like, I'm still not saying I don't spoil my wife. Like, obviously that's a big part of it, but there's just this understanding now, you know, like things, things are a little different, you know, maybe I don't want to like, Oh, he lets you pick wherever you want to eat. Sometimes I'm like, no, I want a taco today. You know, like, like even the little things. And I, and I think part of that and I think kind of to masculinity, right. For, for men or anyone in a relationship for that matter, like, it doesn't have to always be like, oh, my, my job is to make this person happy every single moment of the day, right? Like you make yourself happy and then you're able to show up in their life and you're able to both to make each other happy, even happier, right? Like you have to have that individual happiness to have that collective happiness, right? And and so so that was really what it was. It was just it, it wasn't just communication. It was literally like I, I just wasn't really trying. I was going through the motions and what like Oh, this is so. This is what everyone says you're supposed to do, but like there was no real like root structure or depth behind it, right? And so then I tried to figure it out myself. Yeah, and it's fu so funny that you brought that up because I, I feel like you might have brought that up yesterday. But I was reading a book today, and it's called Man Up. And so every chapter is called like manning up in, in a certain area of your life. So man up in friendship, man up in yourself, man up in your fitness. But the chapter I read today was man up in your marriage. And I'm not married, not even close. I don't even have a girlfriend. So, but in the chapter, he talks about how men use the term uh, happy wife, happy life. And it almost always comes from this place of reluctancy towards the woman because it's like, I have to give up this part of me that I didn't want to give up to make my wife happy. And it always comes from a place of bitterness almost. So I would agree in the sense that that term is basically bullshit. I don't even know if I've heard my dad ever use it in their, his 33, 34 years of marriage. I don't know what they're at right now. And so I, I totally agree. But in terms of you getting there and, and, you know, the whole process of communication, kind of just go over how important that communication was and is. And you talked a little bit about turning to alcohol or how alcoholism. I know you mentioned drugs in the past. How did that kind of interfere with your life? And, and another thing was, when did you start going to therapy? When did you start realizing that you needed therapy? Was that a you choice? Was that an external choice? I don't know where you want to start. That was a lot, but. So, so yeah, that was, that was a lot, but uh, um, I'll try to, I'll try to bring it in full circle to, to get to the therapy piece, right? So, so the alcohol and the pills. So I got pain pills based on some injuries that I had in the military got a little bit addicted. They're, they're a nice feeling. They kind of numb you out, right? Um, so I was doing that and not at all healthy, not at all good for you. When I came back, I was drinking like a bottle of bourbon every day, two days, something like that, right? So if I got mad, I'd just like start down in a bottle. And I was like living that persona, right? Like, oh, to be a badass man, you got to drink a lot. You got to uh, like cuss a lot, and, uh, you know? But really and truly, I mean, I, I was pouring bourbon in my coffee, 
I was pouring bourbon in my Coke. I was pouring, I was pouring just straight bourbon. Like, I mean, it was, it was like water for me throughout the day. And, uh, you know, even, even to this day, people kind of say like, Oh, well, didn't you used to drink like bourbon in your coffee all the time? And I'm like, yeah, but I also used to be a shitty person who cheated on my wife. So like <laughs> that doesn't, that's not a good like baseline, you know? And, uh, and so, uh, doing all of that, a little bit of it was because I hadn't dealt with it. Right. And that was just kind of a nice little way to numb it out and not really deal with it. And I don't say that I've like completely regressed from drink. I very seldom drink now, but, but every now and then I'll have a drink. Right. And I think it's kind of finding your balance, right? If you can, if you can do that, cool. If you can't don't, right. Like it's all about knowing what your limitations are and what your boundaries are and what you can and can't do and what is healthy for you. Right. Like sometimes I like to set up like, so now I might sit outside and have a glass of scotch and talk to my wife. Right. Like that's a healthy way. And she'll have a glass of wine as opposed to me like sitting in a room pissed off drinking a bottle, right? Like those are, those are two very different ways to drink. And so, but, but on the, on that piece, like whatever is healthy for you, right? So I, I talked through therapy about, you know, what that was and why I was turning to it and things like that. And then I just slowly kind of moved away from it. And so the, the piece to actually go and talk to therapy uh, came from basically my wife and I saying like, Hey, we're going to try to work this out, but both of us are going to have to go talk to somebody. Right. So she went and talked to a therapist and I went and talked to a therapist and we had very different conversations with our therapist. Right. Like my therapist was talking about, you know, my foster care and this and that, how that was impacting me and how, you know, maybe, maybe those role models or maybe some of those quote unquote role models, the the men that I had in my life um, were, were, bad role models. And I was taking some of those things from them. Like I wasn't physically abusive to my wife, but mental abuse is just as bad. Right. And, and, you know, trying to manipulate someone or giving them a, a false life or not showing up in their life saying like, you're committed to this person. Right. And then I got really into the Bible. Like I started reading, being religious, getting back to Christianity. Like I said, I grew up in a very Christian family, kind of stepped away from it for a little bit, got back into that started doing yoga, I started doing all these things, because kind of back to that piece, right? Like, I have to be healthy with myself, I have to be okay with the things I've done, I have to be okay with the things that were done to me, to be able to communicate and show up in my marriage, right? So, so when those things kind of happen, and when I started addressing those, I mean, it was rough, like, actually, like, right now, I mean, so sitting at my desk, I have a journal right here, right? So I journal a lot, like all kinds of different things, but all these different pieces, and it's different, right? So I used to be a heavy journaler, now I still journal, not as much. I used to be a heavy runner. Uh, then I jumped into some other hobbies. You know, I like I found different ways to to kind of blow that off and have kind of my own me time, right? And my wife has her time, but we also have we time, right? And, and so it's it's kind of those collective pieces. Like I don't know the the real thing. I think the biggest thing that I came out of therapy with was you got to do a little bit on yourself, right? Like if you're not if you're not okay with yourself, you're not going to be okay inside of your marriage. And, and so that was that was like critical for me. And it kind of, it changed everything, right? It got me to a place where I wasn't just saying like, yes, because of that. And, and it sounds so small, right? Like saying yes to a restaurant, you know, you're like, oh, that, that's so little. Well, it, it's usually the little things that turn up and boil into big things, right? So it's, it's that little annoyance that you never talk about, or you never tell your wife, or she never tells you, right? So, so my wife leaves things out. I tell her like, hey, that's kind of, kind of annoying to me. And she also tells me like, Hey, it's annoying that you don't pick up this, like things you leave on the counter as well, but you, you pick up. So, so for you, when I don't put the food away, that's bad, but, but it's okay for you to, to leave like your plate at the, at the table. Right. Like, like there are different things, but then you think about it and you're like, wow, that's true. Right. Like I'm not seeing it that from that perspective. So if you, 
So I, I just kind of got to a place where I stopped and that was, I used that as kind of like a fight thing, like, oh, this. And so I stopped kind of doing that and saying like, you know what, I'm going to do what I need to do to be better. And oh, it's kind of funny. Like when I start working on me and being better at the things that I do, it kind of goes into my relationship too, right? Because those things aren't there. Those little annoyances aren't, aren't frustrating my wife. She's seeing me make an effort to try to be a, a better husband, a better person. And, and then that re- relates to her, right? And she kind of sees like, oh, there's the man that I saw. There's the man that I fell in love with. There's a person who, who I believed in when he didn't believe in himself, right? So uh, I stopped trying to say, oh, you need to be better uh, for us to be better and saying, I need to be better for us to be better. Because even being married, like, you can't control your spouse. You can't control what they do for their self-improvement or this and that. You can be there to support them. And, you know, I, I try now to be very supportive of whatever my wife goes after the same way she tries to be supportive of me. And so that's kind of the thing, right? Like you individually improve and then that just leads to so much collective improvement. And, and I love it because one of the biggest compliments we get is our son looks like everyone we see says, man, your son looks like such a happy baby. Y'all must be such a happy and connected family. And I'm like, that's amazing, right? Because I don't think that 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 would have been the case had we had a son uh, prior to that, like earlier, right? You know, I think that's really beautiful too. And my one thing that my mom has always said is who you are at home is who you really are. And so now living at home has like allowed me to kind of develop on myself. And I've always felt like I spent five years outside of the home going to university. Um, and I'm like, this is who I really am. But when you come home, you learn, you know, this is what it's more like. This is a more accurate representation, you and your roommates, you living at home of what it would live like to be in a, in a, in a marriage or in a real relationship. And I have always had this idea of like who you are alone is who you really are too. Now it's such an interesting time. Like we we've talked about being in self isolation, but um, it really makes you confront a lot of your inner self. Like I have a lot of goals and dreams, but I also know that I'm wasting half of my day not focusing on that. So I'm like I I re set up my computer to play video games at home for for days off. Um, I hadn't played in like ten months because I've been so busy keeping myself so busy with podcasts with work. Um, I have a lot of these external things, and it's like man, living at home it really shows you again. What your weaknesses are, how you can self-improve. So I'm taking like slow things. Like today, I went for an hour-long walk instead. I decided to read for an hour because I I was doing that while I was going to work. There's just things that inhabits that you have to build as part of yourself to really improve on yourself. Because I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for self-improvement. I'm not really a huge ad- advocate for like self-help books. If, if that makes any sense, I'm not sure if that like like self-help kind of seems more of a of a sale, but I'm like, there's things that I want to pursue, whether that is the act of reading, like the habit of reading or the habit of eating healthy or the habit of this. I'm not really into like the self-help guru stuff, but I'm, I'm really interested. In, so I, I totally agree with the concept of self-improvement and being happy as an individual will make you happy as a couple or as like, uh, as a team. But I want to go back onto therapy and you talked about it. Did you go see the same therapist or a different therapist? That was a quick question I had. A different, different therapist. So we saw different therapists and I was like very anti-therapy, right? Like I was like, oh, I don't need therapy. Like, I'm a man, uh, you know, and, uh, and I don't know, it was just a, it was a shitty stigma, like truth be told, like, that's just a, everyone needs someone to talk to, whether you talk to yourself, whether you go talk to a therapist, like, whether you write it down in a journal, like, we're, we're communicators, right? Like, it's a thing. I don't, know, I don't know how else to say it. And so once I started talking, I was like, wow. And, and I mean, it took me a little bit of time to open up and trust and do that. And I kind of like, and I learned that you get out of therapy what you put into it, right? The same way you get out of a relationship, what you put into it. And it just kind of, it was just this big experience of just 
incremental steps. And I think that's also, so one of my, one of the other things that my wife always says, you know, be faithful in little things and then that, then you can be faithful in the big things, right? Like it's a Bible verse. And, uh, and so she's really big on, you know, being good in the little things and, you know, the, the little things are just, you know, taking those consistent steps and not being so prideful that you can't step into something new, right? It's, it's being open-minded. The little things are, you know, picking up your, your dish, making your bed in the morning, doing just all those little things, like insert whatever little thing. And, and that little thing also applies to therapy as well. Right. So sometimes you don't go to therapy. Well, you can, you can go to therapy when it all breaks. Right. And, and everything's bad. And then that's just a lot of work. Right. Or you can kind of self-maintain and go to therapy or talk to a therapist or journal and, and do all these. So like for now I, I journal. And when I get to a place where I'm like, Oh man, I need to go talk to a therapist, right? Like my journaling starting to go down a, a darker route. I'm starting to kind of get off. I'm starting to be angry a lot. Like, oh, wow, I need to either go work out. So something needs to change, right? Like you start to learn where your baseline is and then you can learn where you're off your baseline. But that only comes by doing those little things consistently, right? Well, it's kind of like with um, the lie detector test is you have to fig- you have to ask a couple questions, right? To figure out the baseline of truth and then go from there totally agree with being proactive. Like I've told um, my parents and I've had conversations with my friends about how if I am serious about marrying someone, I want to be going to couples therapy from the get. Like from the day that I propose, I want to be like, you and I have to be able to op- like be open to going to couples therapy from the start because I want to be proactive in, in this stuff. And I've had a lot of friends discuss with me being like, well, why would you go if there's no problems? It's because I've watched my parents be married for 33 years and there's no such thing as never having a problem. Like that's just the reality of it, right? So it's funny you say that because one of the biggest things like, so, and we say this now um, because, and especially from her and I looking back, right? So when we, when we first got married, you know, one of the things she would tell her friends uh, all the time, and I would even say too, is we never fight. Like we're, we're so perfect. We never fight. Like things are great. We never fight. Like if you never fight as a couple, there's a problem <laughs> like just so because not every day is going to be perfect and life is crappy right like so look at covid right now like so me and my wife have been through unemployment we've been through medical scares with our son we've been through the affair we've been through like all these different things right and so as much as i enjoy the great memories we had and the great times we've had together it's the bad memories and the shitty times that make you able to deal with self-isolation or this COVID or the uncertainty, right? So I don't know. There, there's there's a little bit of beauty in the problems, I guess. So Well, yeah, as you said earlier, you can't have a testimony without a test, which is basically what you're talking about with, with that therapy uh, or, you know, with all those issues that you've, you've worked through and gone through. And I just thought it was super naive of my friends to be like, no, you don't need to have like, I just want to be super proactive in it. I just want to be able to have those conversations. Cause I, I know that when you're pretty new into a relationship is the honeymoon phase. But to me, the honeymoon phase is really just, sometimes you might just be lacking honest communication and you need someone to be able to push that communication forward. And I don't think there's anything wrong with, with getting, I love getting nitty gritty on the first date. I'll talk about certain things. Cause I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to waste their time. I want to be like, these are my life goals. This is my like career focus. This is my family goals. You know, this is what I think I want now. If we're not aligned now, I don't want to go down that path potentially in a, a year from now, figure out that we're still not aligned. Right. And I think proactive is good, right? Like we, we tell businesses, oh, you should be proactive. Oh, you should be innovative. You know, we, we tell 
we tell our child, you know, start thinking about what you want to be when you grow up, right? Like we want proactive in everything else. Why is it so bad to want it in our marriages and in our relationships? And going on to how you've kind of grown and developed and some of the frameworks that you live by now, there were some some things that we talked about yesterday that I thought were really, really powerful. One was discipline equals freedom equals control. Kind of why, why don't you go into that one? I wrote it down because it was super good. Yeah, man. So that's actually another book. It's called Extreme Ownership and it's by a Navy SEAL, right? And it's a very big military-esque kind of thing, right? Discipline equals freedom. So the, the concept is basically like when there's a framework that gives you the freedom to operate inside that framework, but you know what the boundaries are, right? And so inside a relationship, right? Like knowing what the boundaries are in that relationship allow you to operate in this free space and do whatever, you know? And so it gives you that freedom and kind of that, that control because inside of that freedom, you then know I can make these choices, I can do these things. And that gives you kind of control of how the narrative goes and things like this, because you always know that there's this overarching frame that you don't want to get outside of. It's just a great way, in my opinion, to look at life, to look at business, to look at everything, right? Because because no matter how much we want to say like, oh, we want anarchy and complete freedom and control, you really don't. Like nobody really does, right? Everybody wants a little bit of structure, a little bit of control. And and I think by knowing what those boundaries are, and it doesn't have to be extremely tight boundaries. Like I'm not saying that we have to live in a one by one. Like we can live in a seven by seven. That's cool, right? Like you just have to have some form of these are the rails and we can't go offside of them, right? So so for me, it might be, you know, date night is on Wednesday, or hey, you know, I will turn off my computer and have time with my wife and son before he goes to bed every night, right? Like those, those frameworks don't have to be so tight at exactly precisely 4 p.m. every day, I will. Now, now I'm, not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like a, an overall framework because you still need to be able to operate and shift. And I would, I would recommend Extreme Ownership. There's another great book and it really dives into that discipline equals freedom. Extreme Ownership is what you said? Yeah, it's called, by, it's by Jocko Willing. He even has a podcast too. Nice. Okay, perfect. Everyone has a podcast nowadays. He's got, yeah, he's got a long form one, man. And he's just, I mean, he's, He's awesome, man. Definitely, definitely check it out. So here I am, shameless plug. Will do. I always love shameless plugs of books because everyone, it's so funny. I don't think I've ever had an over, I've recorded now 23 episodes, I think. I don't think I've ever had an overlapping book. So that's just 23 different books for me to read and for all my guests to read. But there was something in there that you talked about. Yeah, no, yeah. The creating a framework. And it's so funny to me how that, what you just said, aligns so much with the idea of the paradox of choice. And once you have too much choice, you get frozen by all that choice. It's it's once you have the anarchy, it's like, where do I go from now, from here? It's the same thing as when I was in school and, and the professors would say, now do whatever you want with this project. Okay, what well, I don't know what that means. If you they found that if you gave a student more freedom, the more they'd they'd be like, I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to do. And I'm like, he's literally giving you the freedom to do whatever you want. You can make a podcast, you can make a little magazine, you can make any type of design that con like converses about the stuff all you want, but they'd always freeze under that analysis, under that anarchy. And it, it's just so funny the human condition of we say what we want, but once we have it, we don't want it anymore because we're like, oh no, the old structure actually worked. Yeah, I agree, man, completely. And and even inside of relationships, like especially inside of relationships, right? Like you've got to have some form of bumper rails. You just got to. Yeah. And I'm definitely something that I've always struggled with my entire life is creating that discipline for myself. 
So now that's something I'm, I'm really trying to work on as especially go through this, this time of self-isolation. I still want to work on all these side projects. I have to carve out time for them. I have to create these opportunities for them because I don't want to ever lose. Because honestly, this is a great time to be a podcaster. Everyone's at home. Everyone should be accessible. Like just the logic of it is that this is a time for me to potentially thrive. So I think I've recorded like four this week, which has been, I had like the four scheduled before even COVID was a thing. So, but it's still that, that, that idea that this is, uncertain times for some people, but for, for me, it's potential opportunity as well. And I have to create the discipline and freedom around that to then create an environment I can control. But yeah, this has been amazing. Um, I definitely want to go into, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Hmm, keep going. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So I, I know there was other things that you took, talked about when you came to therapy, someone's journaling, meditating. So, you know, as someone who may be struggling with their journaling journey and their meditating journey, what are some best tips, best practices that you have? Like, what do you write? What, what, where, what's the thought process behind these journaling self-improvement tips? So I will give you my journaling, like my personal way of journaling, but I will also say there's a journal called Mind Journal and you definitely like, and so it comes with like prompts. So like right now, that's the one that I'm working. What is your role as a man? <laughs> so, so funny, right? The first one I opened up, what is your role as a man? Right? Like I, I didn't even plan that, I promise. But, but it starts out and it says, how do you feel today? What are today's intentions and achievements? Three things you're grateful for. Your happy hour for today, right? So they sell these. You can buy it on mindjournal.com, I believe. Um, definitely, like I'll, I'll shoot you the link after this. But it is, and it gives you space to write, like free write, but it kind of tells you like how to start. Like, how do you feel today? What are your intentions? So that was a good place for me to start. And then it's a place that I recycle back to, right? Because it's... Uh, it's just powerful but along with that also i sometimes i'll write like in story form like you know today on january whatever i did this this and this right so i, I think that's kind of cool and you know other times I'll, I'll treat it like a conversation and i'll be like just very angry and i'll just uh, usually when i'm angry it's a conversation i'm like playing out what the other person is saying and how i would respond and this and that and then sometimes like Usually first thing in the morning, if I journal early in the morning and, and I do, so I normally try to journal twice in the day, once in the morning, once in the evening. Right. And so, and as, and at certain times I may or may not do both, but when I do in the morning is I'll just like mash, just like data dump. Right. So it'll just be like random thoughts. Like, Oh, this would be a cool book. Oh, I would like this for dinner. Oh, this is great. You know, like just whatever is in my head. And, and at that time I don't even like write in the lines. Like I just like free write all over the page. It's, it's awesome. That's kind of what I do with my my interview books. It's like so I have this this journal and it's just all my talks with all uh, all my my guests and it's it's so nice to go back into it cuz it's all my notes of like my my phone call with you, my phone call with other one, but it's just like all these different ideas that just flow together on, on one page and they they don't connect to anyone else but to me and it's it's, it's kind of like that beauty in in the sense that I like how no one is able to read my mind and make this connect and today I'm another practice I'm I'm starting is I'm always going to try to have a notebook in my in my pants pocket like it's a very small very very small cute little book but it fits perfectly in the back pocket and so today on my walk I made it a thing that I was just going to walk around and, and write in it any any idea that came to my head that I thought I would want to pursue so it's something I'm trying to, I'm trying to start now as well. I love that. I love that. So I also do, um, so like words of affirmation kind of thing. Right. So it's, it comes from Craig Rochelle and he basically, you know, like I am, I'm this, I'm a man of God. I'm this, I'm that. And so for me, you know, like I kind of do something similar. I'm a father, I'm a husband. I'm not, I'm not defined by what happened to me in the past. I'm striving to be better every day. I felt, you know, like just kind of these little mantras. So, so sometimes when I journal, I'll write that out. Or if there's a Bible verse 
for a motivational quote or something like I'll put that first and then I'll kind of like write what that means to me. Right. And then, uh, and it's flown down to my son. So uh, my wife, before she drops him off at school, she gets him to say, you know, I am strong. I am brave. I am Jonah. Like, you know, just kind of those words. So I, I think journaling can be even as simple as that. Right. Like sometimes when I don't even know what to write, I just like, I'm Roman and I'm a little bit better today than I was yesterday and journal entry done for the day. Right. Because just sometimes, and I, and I treat it like medicine, right. Or like working out or anything else, you know, like if you keep a little bit and kind of just don't let that tank get to empty, that's good. Right. Some days I may like have to fill up the full tank. Right. So I guess a car, car would be a better analogy. Right. Some days I need to fill up the full tank. Some days I only need to fill up a quarter tank. Some days I just need to like, Oh, some days I may not even need to like, Oh, Hey, we're good for today. Right. So that's kind of how I look at journaling. And there's people who disagree who are like, Oh, you should journal every day. And Oh, and like I said, sometimes I journal twice a day. Sometimes I journal once a day. Sometimes I just take like a little note in my phone and I'm like, Oh, Hey, this would be really cool. And then like I transfer that over to paper. Sometimes I forget to transfer it over to paper. Right. I think it's just more getting it out of your head. Like that, that's the key point to it. And I think journaling can be as simple or as complex as you want to make it. I'm a big like pens and notebook person. So I do say like, have a cool notebook and have a cool pen, right? Go to Baron Fig and get an awesome pen. They're, they're kind of expensive, but they're super cool. Go to Jet Pen if you want to find cheaper, like huge plethora of pens. Like there, there's giant selection. You can pick whatever you want. And then, you know, get on Amazon and look up cool journals and pick one that kind of speaks to you. Because mine are different for every season. Like I have a leather binder one that's really cool. Like just some are different. Some are solid colors. Like I have a solid black one. I have a solid blue one. My wife has like her own and she's got flowers for some of them, bright colors for others. Like, so it, it just, those two things have always been, I don't know, like when it's something like that, you kind of want to write in it, you know what I mean? And so I, I think that's the biggest piece. Like you have to get something that you want to write in and you want to do and that you can kind of consistently do until you get that rhythm. And then you can kind of back to baseline, right? So you can figure out what your baseline is. Do I need to journal every day? Can I drop down to once a week? Can I just do it as needed, right? So it just, you have to build to that, I think. Yeah, exactly. And I've, uh, it's funny because sometimes when I learned the power of the data dump was basically some nights I can't, like I have struggles to fall asleep and I just know I'm overthinking something. So I'll just take out my laptop and I literally write whatever's in my head till I stop no sentences, no punctuation. It's literally just whatever. It's just a data dump. And even with, if you're struggling to write something, you know, I think a lot of people go into it thinking it's a chore um, and that, or like a routine that they have to follow, which is why they, they kind of dump it. But to me, if it's like, I don't know what to write right now, literally write, I don't know what to write right now. And you'll find that the, the pen will just keep going. Like it just, it won't stop. Cause you'll be like, I don't know what to write now, right now. There was no food in the fridge and you'll just go into like some sort of random spiel and you'll get to where you want it to go. Cause that, that, that it will just, it's amazing how the mind works. And I think, I think you have to keep them too. Like that's another cool piece of journaling, right? Like I like to go back and look at some of the things I wrote, like some of the things from uh, deployment, right? Some of the things from when me and my wife were in, in a rough place, like, like there are different chapters of your life and the way you write is different. Like I've even gotten to a place now where I can tell like, by the way my handwriting is, what like kind of my emotion was when I was writing, right? Like if it's short and scribbly, I'm usually mad and aggressive, right? Like when it's really more drawn out and you start seeing more cursive in my print, I'm usually probably a little high, a little happier and kind of in like this thinker mode. When it's all block letters, I'm like not going through the motion, but I'm strictly just writing what I need to write, you know? So it, it's, it's kind of interesting to go back and look and kind of, so I also have a degree in analytics, right? So for me, I, I find like the analytics and everything. 
Yeah. And it's funny because I'm, I'm the same way. I like to keep a lot of my stuff too. And I'll go back to certain books and I'll find certain things that I literally predicted just happened to predict like months before it actually came to fruition. Like right now I'm looking at one and I remember writing down in it that um, there's this this dream job I have. And I I believe I'm going to work there one day. And it will be just nice that if I ever come actually start working there, I'll look back on it and be like, holy shit. Like I actually wrote this down and I, I believe in, you know, manifestation and all that stuff. And I actually have proof that I've, that I've written it. I've thought about it and there's different things. Like right now I'm looking at this, this note I made about a book club. And now I wrote this like way back in the summer of last year. And this week I'm starting a book club probably with my work. And it's, they're not connected at all, but it's just like, I like to read and now I'm spreading that joy of reading to something else. And yeah, so like, I love bringing them or using like bringing back all my notebooks as well. So what's the dream job? What's the dream job? So I guess like my, my dream job, there's this YouTube company I, I really love called Jubilee and they do like amazing content that brings people together. It's all about like empathy and really going deep into certain conversations that are really hard to discuss. And I just love to be on their on their product design team or like conceptualization of topic team because I love deep conversations. I've always I've never really shied away from them. People want to know things about me. I'll I'll talk to anyone and it's media and it's in LA. So like very much like a lot of the things that I really want to tie together in my life. I want to have like a media company in the future. And so I think that they're a great stepping stone and a great place to learn. And also I love their mission. I love the, everything that they do. Man, I love it. I love it, man. I'm all about speaking it out there, right? Like you can call it, you can call it God. I know for people who aren't religious, you can call it like just speaking it into the universe, whatever it is, right? Like you, you just got to get it out there. There's just something, I don't know. There's just something powerful about saying it. Honestly, it's just to me, like, yes, I agree with that. But two, it's logical because you never know who you know that knows someone, right? Like to me. Yeah. So, so you literally saying that. So like when you said like empathy and things like that, I thought of a person that I know that I had the pleasure of talking to in the past, Amy Perkins. Right. And I'm like, oh man, you two would connect perfectly. Right. And then I thought about like, oh man, there, there's this other person who she's really great at media and she loves like unconventional leaders and she's got a podcast her name's heather parody like man you guys should totally read man i'm like dropping so many people in this thing like uh but 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 you know what i mean like that's what happens right so anytime you speak something exactly like what you're saying like then that person's mind instantly goes to well who do i know in that space you know to, yeah, to me, it's like I my one of my dreams is to have Terry Crews on this podcast because he has a book called Manhood. He's That's like awesome. he's done videos about pornography. Uh, he's been very open about his 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 shame and a lot of his marriage. And to me, it's like if I don't tell people I dream about having Terry Crews on the show. What if what if one day a stranger listens to my episode? And they're like, oh, this guy wants to have Terry Crews on. I know Terry Crews. Terry Crews is a good friend. You know, it's like, that's amazing. Why? Who knows Terry Crews? Get him on this guy's show. Let's go. Come on. What are we doing? To me, it's just like a, it's a logical thing. And some people will be like, oh, you're going to jinx it. I'm like, I don't, yo, fuck jinxing. Like, it's going to happen. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. If it's not, it's not. But I believe. Terry Crews will be on this podcast. I believe I'll have Steph Curry on my podcast. Like, yes, that'd be awesome, right? And I think it's about being open, right? Like it's being open and being receptive and, you know, letting the universe in, letting God in, letting that work, right? And you just have to, you have to be open. Like the problem is for so many things, and, I, and I'm even talking to myself here, right? Like there's things that, 
you know, I know I should be chasing after and, and I'm just, you know, I get in my own head sometimes, but there's just something about saying it out and getting it out in the open. It's out. You can't get in your head anymore. Like it's out there. No, it's out. It's out. What are you going to do about it? Like you're going to either going to help me until you make fun of me. Well, you just look, look like a dick. Like, I don't know. Yeah. You know, right. Yeah. I'm with you, man. At least I'm creating something that will, you know, potentially has the chance of me getting there. So like, that's a hundred percent me. And it's funny because my, my sister got me this, this current journal I'm using. It says, I regret nothing on the front. And she got it in partnership with a book called Ego is the Enemy. Oh, great book, man. That's an amazing book. By Ryan Holiday, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I haven't actually read it yet. I started reading it, but I just thought she, my sister knows me pretty well. We're pretty similar in a lot of ways, but I just thought it was so funny to get me something that says ego is the enemy. And then one, I regret nothing. They're very juxtaposed, like juxtaposized, uh, the phrases, but I'm like, I, I, I opened it. I'm like, this is hilarious. That's awesome, man. You're going to love the book. You're going to love it. Yeah. I, it's I one imagine. of my go back and rereads. Oh, is it? Do you read other other ones of his book as well? Um, so I actually have one of his on my audio book to listen to right now. Which one did I just pull up? Uh, Growth Hacker Marketing by Ryan Holiday. That's what I'm reading. And then what other one? I have another one of his saved. What's the other one? Um, the Obstacle is Away. Oh yes, I've I've heard of that one. That's the, that's I haven't read that one yet, and that's that's on my list of two reads. And so now inside of Audible, I have zero excuse, right? Yeah. Or uh, Scribe, I have zero excuse. Yeah, perfect. You're plugging a lot of products and people, but it's it's fun. I'm telling yeah. you, man. Like, man, I maybe maybe I should like be more of a marketing person. I don't know what's going on here. No, <laughs> you should clearly. Yeah, you're just you're pulling names out of a hat that are relevant, and I'm like, I'm loving this. Uh, yeah, man. I I mean, I could go on even longer rant. I, there's another great book. So speaking of Steph Curry, uh, there's a guy that I know who actually. He's a coach, man. I'm, I'm going to have to shoot you the links to all these people so you can throw them in there. So he's like a performance coach and uh, his name is Alan Stein Jr. And he wrote a book called Raise Your Game. And it even has a workbook and the book is amazing, right? So I'm not even a basketball fan and I like the book. So I'm, I'm really not a basketball fan uh, at all. My son loves basketball. So I'm starting to try to like it more, but I'm not. And so the book Raise Your Game, he wrote and it's an amazing book has a workbook that you can go along and work through it on. And uh, he taught Kobe Bryant. He trained with Kobe Bryant, Steph Curry, like all kinds of different people, right? So um, definitely a great guy. He's on LinkedIn. There's some great stuff on there. Has a podcast, right? So he's definitely a great person to connect to. What's his name? Alan Stein Jr. See, now I'm just like one person removed from Steph Curry. There seems. you go, right? Just, like it's literally Just like, from saying you know, it. That's what I, t- I totally believe it. Yeah. And I didn't even, yeah. And see, like, I didn't even realize that knowing Alan would one day get me to a place where I'm like, Hey, let me like throw his podcast out on the thing. Right. So it just, uh, it's crazy, man. Like how really small the world is because you're in Canada, I'm in Texas, right? Like, I mean, what, what are the odds that we would be together talking about like masculinity and, you know, me talking about the military and talking about like an affair on my wife and, you know, how, how I've come along and how, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a father now. And like, like where, where do you, like, it's just so crazy, right? Like, how does this even happen? Yeah. And it's funny because I read a book recently called uh, How Luck Happens. And it's all, all like in the book, all it talks about is how, for the most part, who you want to get in contact with is three people away, like three contacts away. So it's called like, there's a chapter called the power of weak uh, ties or weak connections. And it's more, you're more likely to get access to someone like Steph Curry, I would be more likely to get access to him from a third connection than I would be from a first connection because my first connections, I already know. Basically, I know them. I know the people they know. 
but the people I don't know are the ones that probably know the people I want to get, I want to know. And it's just a fascinating book about how you could probably almost find someone, like I could probably find someone in South Africa through three connections or four connections. Like really most of the world because of just like the, the, the space or the amount of people is really only three or four people away. That's really cool, man. That's super neat. Yeah. But um, I definitely, man, I love this conversation. I think this has been one of the most like naturally flowing conversations I've had like on the podcast and in a, in a, and like, I'm, that's what one thing I'm trying to get better as a host is really like connect more throughout the whole story. But to go into the last three questions, then I'll like close it off by what, you know, what you got going on in your life. The last three questions I ask are, what is one piece of advice that your father or an important male fa- father figure gave you that you live by every day? Man, so... I think for that one, I'd have to say that um, I have, he, he really, he was a warrant officer. Uh, his name's Aaron Hinnigan. And he was just, he's, he, well, he is, he is an amazing man. We still connect. He helped me kind of understand stocks and all this different kind of stuff. Uh, you know, told me not to be such a knucklehead at times and things like that. But he basically just really what he told me was kind of more what he did, right? He just believed in me. He was like, he just said, you can do it. Like, go do it. You can do it. You know, just don't. And, and that was kind of, it's just so powerful. And it sounds so simple, right? Like it's not this long philosophical quote, but like it, it's, you can do it, like go do it. And then, you know, when I tell him that I'm doing something, he's like, that's amazing. That's, that's great. You're doing amazing. You know what I mean? So, so it's sometimes just something as simple as those, you can do it. And it's been so impactful. And I know that that's not like so some crazy quote, but from a person who isn't a father figure to me to have taught, taught me so many little things and then to just believe in, you know, basically anything I touch can be great. That's so powerful in and of itself, in my opinion. Yeah, totally agree. And then I, uh, I had another guest on once who talked about how it wasn't the most complex thing he'd ever been told, but because it came from an unlikely source that made it more powerful. You know, you, you can go through life with your mom, your dad, your wife, all telling you things that you know inherently to be true, but because it comes from them and they're supposed to say it, they're expected to say it, it doesn't really hold as much weight. But if you hear it from an outside source who is like, you know, your wife's brother or something, he tells you something. I think that was actually the scenario in this case, but you're not expecting those that kind of support from him. It's not his job to do it. And so that makes it mean a bit more. The second last question is, what is one piece of advice that you wish your father or an important male figure gave you? You know, I... To, to not, just to not dwell on the bad. Like there's a lot of bad and a lot of the problems I dealt with were because I, you know, I, I dwelled on it. I didn't address it and I just kind of let it there and I let it simmer and let it stew. Like I wish someone had told me it would be okay to deal with it and that, you know, it's, it's okay to, to love people and, and let yourself be loved and love yourself. But, but all of that would come from not dwelling on those things. Like you're going to make mistakes. And, and I wish I'd kind of known that earlier. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And then the last question is what is one piece of advice that you want to pass down to future generations or your kids? Oh man. So <laughs> don't be like me. No, um, <laughs> but for, for my son, I think the biggest thing I want to do is to teach him is that, uh, well, so I, I think I can show it a little better. Like, my opinion is always work to, to get the next mug up. Right. So like I got, I got the world's greatest dad mug right now, but I'm working to be the world's greatest grandpa. Right. And it it starts with what I do right now as a dad. Right. So, you know, and just apply that to everything in life. How do you, 
know, if you if you're be the world's greatest son, well, I'm trying to be the world's greatest father, right? And you know, just kind of kind of work that step up and in your job, you know, like I, I want to be the next level, the world's the next greatest at this, and and kind of always be thinking a level up, and you'll always get a level up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. I think that's so true. You always have to be ready for the next stage of your life. And then finally, Roman. What you got going on in your life? What do you want to share? Anything else that was missed? Now's your time to to promote you, promote your story, promote anything. Nah, man. So really and truly the best place to to connect with me is on LinkedIn. Um, I have a little, I have a Facebook page and things like that. I'm not really as heavy on them, but uh, LinkedIn is where I'm at. I try to help businesses as much as I can, uh, especially right now with everything going on with COVID. I've been trying to to reach out and help small businesses, you know, free of charge for as long as I can. Obviously, I, I don't think I can sustain it forever, but it, it's been nice to to kind of do that. So LinkedIn's where I post all kinds of business things, you know, what, what's going on in my personal life. And that's, that's really where it's happening. And that's me in a nutshell. Beautiful. Roman, thank you so much for being here. This has been an incredible, incredible podcast, incredible story. The amount of vulnerability you show in terms of sharing your story from being a foster child to the military to, you know, the affair you had uh, on your wife. I think there's so much in here that any young man who's looking to grow into their own can can learn from and any man who is married can learn from as well. I just think there's so much depth to your story. Probably didn't even get to the, to the deepest parts of it. But man, this has been an amazing, amazing interview. I loved having you on. I loved conversing with you. I think the, you know, talking about the books and the journaling at the end was, was a great aspect as well. You're a really easy down to earth guy to talk to. And I, I really appreciate you reaching out to me. I think you were the first inbound lead I had for my show. So it feels, uh, it feels amazing uh, that it's getting noticed and, and there's some recognition and I definitely, definitely value you and your story. And thank you for sharing it. No, thank you. Thank you for giving me the platform and, and thanks for having this platform, right? To, to kind of talk about masculinity the way you are. I think it's a, I think it's a topic that needs to be talked about and it's, it's our topic and that's what kind of interested me in it. And I'm just, I'm just honored that I could be on. So, so thank you for even having me. Anytime you want to come back on, if I'm ever in San Antonio, I'm hitting you up. I know exactly who to hit up. Yes, definitely. Hopefully we can meet in person one time. I love it. But yeah, thank you so much for being here. And uh, that's the podcast. Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of Imperfect. Let me know what you thought. Send me a message on my Instagram, The Imperfect Pod, as well as connect with me on LinkedIn at Luke West. Please leave a review on iTunes. It does a lot for the show. Leave a comment too. I'll, I'll feature those comments on my Instagram as well. And again, thank you so much to my editor, Matthew McClelland, for making this sound so good. And next week's guest is Jason Leaf, the CEO of Jubilee Media. I know that um, he was originally scheduled for the 10th, but we didn't really feel comfortable posting that during the whole Black Lives Matter situation. You know, we wanted to respect that. If you haven't checked out my episode where I just talked to myself about what it's like to be a, a white man, kind of having those conversations with myself and, and confronting those issues within myself, please tune into it. That's, uh, that's next week's episode. And I really hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you again next week. Cheers.